session. Uh, my name is Joel Reidenberg. Uh, I am a professor of law here at Fordham University. And along with my colleague, uh, Deron Benatar, who is a professor in the history department uh, in, the, in, Fordham College, in the arts and science uh, faculty uh, here at Lincoln Center, um, we're really thrilled to uh, be hosting uh, this event tonight, uh, and especially thrilled to be working with uh, ISGAP uh, on the seminar series uh, this semester uh, and next semester. Uh, it's really a, a treat for us. Um, I will uh, introduce uh, Charles, uh, Dr. Charles Small, who I think needs no introduction to this crowd. Um, but we're, we're very excited as, to have him here, um, to be working with him as the director of this gap and really doing um, what is just such a primarily important work uh, in, in the study of anti-Semitism, uh, to understand it. Um, we can't address policy issues unless we really have a thorough, serious understanding uh, of these issues. So it, it's for us in the university, it's, uh, it's really an important thing for us to be doing. Thanks, John. So first, and most sincerely, I'd like to thank Joel, the University Professor of Law, Ron Benatar, Chair of the History Department, co-chair of the History Department here at Fordham, yeah. who invited me and this guy to have the seminar series here. These guys sort of picked me off the street when uh, Yale unceremoniously uh, closed our center. So I'm, I'm really grateful that you uh, took the opportunity, uh, took the, the time to, uh, to work with me when it wasn't necessarily politically correct to do so. And I think. I don't want to get too political, but we're living in a time where the study of contemporary anti-Semitism is not only complex and a sensitive issue, it's a highly charged and a highly political issue, and it's an issue that people do not want to deal with in the academy, in the media, and among policymakers. And we know from history that we can't remain silent, that we need, particularly in the academy, to examine these issues from an interdisciplinary perspective, uh, from a rational scientific analysis, making rational scientific analysis, to shed light, as uh, Ari Bernard Levy says, to shed light where there is darkness, that this is the role of a scholar and the role of an intellectual. And I think the challenge that we face these days is significant. Um, we're living in a global, in an age of globalization, and there is the rise of a reactionary social movement that demonizes the other, particularly it's using Europe, the most pernicious forms of European anti-Semitism to fuel its social movement. And I would argue, from my perspective, that the West, intellectuals in particular, have acquiesced to this. That they find their common cause opposed to Western hegemony, etc., etc. So this is, a, I guess, the reason why this gap is, uh, exists. We're, we're honored, it's really a privilege to be doing this seminar here at Fordham, thanks to the two of you. We're also starting a program at McGill, at the Harvard Law School, we're having a program at uh, legal issues, human rights, discrimination, and international law. And at Stanford, we're doing some programming as well. So we're off to a, a good start, but we're at the first stage of reestablishing ourselves. But hopeful that uh, we can create a vibrant center. And today is actually the first uh, seminar that we're doing as we are reestablished. And it's, uh, it's really an honor, and it happened by circumstance that uh, 
we're fortunate to have Professor Harry Goldborn here with us. Um, and before, uh, I'll read his uh, brief, I'll make a brief formal introduction and I'll tell you a quick uh, story. So Professor Harry Goldborn um, was a professor of sociology and the director of the Race and Ethnic uh, Research Center at London South Bank University. He's widely published and has an extraordinarily distinguished career. He has numerous books and articles. He's uh, participated as a public intellectual, predominantly in the UK, on radio and television, dealing with the, the issues of uh, race, identity, and the like in the European and British context. He's written many books, including Race and Ethnicity, The Politics and State in the Third World, Ethnicity and Nationalism in Post-Imperial Britain, and most recently, Transnational Families, Ethnicities, Identities, and Social Capital. And I think, just as an aside, when I was a student, I used to take seminars at Warwick University, where Professor Goldberg was based, and it was an extraordinary group of people. Um, we'd have these seminars, and I would go as a kid, and I would go and keep my mouth closed and, and really listen. And there were amazing people in that room. And, and I think that this, for me, if, if, if we could try to achieve in our little center what was achieved in Europe circles, uh, we would have an enormous achievement. And basically, Professor Goldborn, I think, was part of a, an intellectual group or network of young scholars who later became uh, leading figures, I would say, in social theory, cultural studies, the study of race and ethnic relations, uh, colonialism, post-colonialism. Um, and I think this, this body of material um, is of extraordinary importance because it really decoded and mapped the influence of colonialism, racism, um, discrimination, gendered issues, on how society, so the power relations of society, but also how these ideas, how we're socialized, how ideas are are embedded in society, in, into institutions, and how I think through some of the research that was done in, in this network of scholars to deconstruct the, the power and influence of racism, sexism, colonialism on society. And I would say that, in a sense, the study of anti-Semitism has been isolated. Anti-Semitism was a problem, first of all, it was pre-1945. Most of the studies happened somehow, the, the, the line somehow was drawn in 1945 forward. Um, so the study of anti-Semitism was a thing for Holocaust studies and maybe in Jewish studies. And I think that we, as scholars, kind of missed the boat on this important work and we're sort of not really a part of the of this work, of this crucial work. And I think that if we at ISGAP have any measure of success, then I hope we can start to emulate and really look at the impact of anti-Semitism on society in the same sort of framework and context of, of the important work that was done through the decades in which Professor Goldberg was very much a part of. So it, in that sense, it's really a stroke of luck and fortune that uh, you're with us this evening. And I'm, I'm honored and grateful to Thank you very much for those warm words of welcome, Charles. And, um, it's very good indeed that one can hear some decades after being in charge of a seminar, a running one, that 
there were some people who actually benefited um, <laughs> from, from those events. Uh, a very distinguished scholar named uh, Walter Rodney was asked, how does he think that he influenced his students? And he said, well, he thinks that after a lifetime of work, he probably might have influenced two or three. This was a man who, of course, who, whose work was renowned internationally. So Charles Sanders opened for those words, his words which one should certainly be able to pass on to some of those members of that group who are still very much active and kicking. You know that John Rex, who perhaps you have, you have met certainly at that seminar, uh, or series, uh, passed away last year. And of course, um, in some of the exchanges we used to have, um, I personally used to call John Rex JR. Now, I'm sure you will remember JR from the series that you had on television here, and the characteristics of that dynamic <coughs> figure. And uh, John was certainly a great intellectual pugilist, and we all hated him so much and thought, why doesn't he just go away and leave us younger people to run the show? Of course, now that he's gone, to the extent we wish well, wish him well. But um, when Charles invited me to come and give a talk on this, I, I was quite, um, I was quite uh, worried actually as to what I should talk about. Um, uh, because I thought, given the title of the series, it might be opportune for me to develop a theme that has long been at the back of, of one's mind and within the context of some of the work that I've done in the last 25 years, and to look at something which was indeed part of my own childhood, part of my own growth as an individual uh, in Britain, that was to consider the relationship between the world Jewish persuasion, Jewish background, and um, people who have settled uh, in Britain from the Caribbean, and the tremendous relationship that there were, and it's something between those groups, and it's something that has not been written about. I think in particular of such matters as um, relation between new settling families who needed to purchase homes for themselves. And at that time, of course, banks, building societies would not lend to people such as my parents. Because to get a loan from a building society, you would have needed to um, be with them for at least 10 years or more. And of course, immigrants are not people who are with building societies for that period of time. And accommodation, living space, is one of the most crucial things for um, the new arrivals in any part of the world. And it was really helped from the Jewish community of tremendous importance. The struggles also of um, Jewish communities in parts of London in particular, but other British cities also, also set a model for the struggles that were to uh, follow in the 19, late 50s, 1960s, and 70s. Um, I would also relate a short little incident that occurred, I think, some. 15, 16 years ago, when I published the book Race Relations in Britain. And uh, those of you, of course, you'll know when you're negotiating with publishers for your books to be published, it's not always a very easy experience. After going through the various hurdles over a period of two years or so, turning in my final manuscript 
um, final piece of publication. And of course, was going to be the work that would shatter the world. The last reviewer, looking at the finished product, responded in these terms. Um, Harry Goulburn should put this text in the bin, and he should start all over again. And I sometimes quote this to my PhD students, when you have to rigorously go through their work and say, well, you know, this is the sort of thing that happens when, you, um, when you're pitching your mind against others, and when you're attempting to make a statement about some social or historical factor. Um, of course, I didn't do that. I didn't put anything to go away. But I realized that I must have upset someone tremendously. And I've often thought that probably the thing that upset um, that reader profoundly, something that Charles hinted at just now in his introduction, that is that the, one of the assertions of that book, Race Relations in Britain since 1945, was that it started in 1945. And it sort of asserted that the notion of a multicultural society of Britain started with the arrival in sizable proportions of people from the English-speaking Caribbean, from uh, uh, the Indian subcontinent, and the pockets of Africa. And therefore, to underplay the role of other minorities in British history going back to the Middle Ages. And I thought perhaps this talk chart was going to be the opportunity for me to address that. And I wrote half of a paper along those lines. And then I thought, you know, I need to um, integrate that argument, address that problematic within a book that I'm writing um, for, uh, for Cambridge. That text, something's been in the making for, I would think, perhaps the better part of 20 years. Because one of the texts um, of mine that Charles referred to, Ethnicity and Nationalism in Post-Imperial Britain, published in 1991, um, and Cambridge again, we published it uh, two or three years ago, exactly as it is. So I'm a bit proud of that, that they've done that, because the arguments therein are still relevant to the problems that British society faces today. And that problematic, which I think much of the literature in British society in the post-war years misses, is that Britain, as one of the major European imperial powers over the last two or three centuries, Having withdrawn, or having been thrown out of, depending on which way you look at it historically, um, of its empire, had to face a new challenge in the world. The new nation states that sprung up elsewhere throughout the world also had to face new challenges. And whilst those have been addressed very well, very much so, in terms of post colonial studies, with regard to the post-imperial society, there are very few of us, uh, when I say few, I just don't want to draw attention to my own, but as being exceptional or different in any way, but in fact I can think of only one other title, which one of the texts that carries that particular title. In other words, it has been much neglected. So in the fields of, um, of such works, I felt that the paper that I'm going to give was, is very much within a wider context. It's not exactly around the theme of anti-Semitism or 
policies and so on, but it probably should be seen as contextual to, to much of what occurs in those <coughs> areas. It is cast very much within the context of what I call post-imperial, post-imperial condition, post-imperial society. And I start with a broad historical perspective, which I'm sure will be contentious, particularly with a historian um, but I start from something which has influenced me from my earliest um, academic years, from my school days, from my uh, pre-university days, of the world <coughs> of the, of the outstanding and abidingly acclaimed historian and literary giant of the Augustan age of the English Enlightenment, Edward Gibbon, who considered the rise of Christianity and its theological hostility to polytheism as one of the four sets of major causes for the decline and the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. And the beginning, I'm sorry, the bringing about of a post-imperial Europe fraught with intolerance. And so I have entitled my talk, very much borrowing from Gibbon's work in a way, and from other writers, simply religion. Enemy of the open society, Post imperial Britain question because it's a question, it's a point I wish to struggle with and to share with you, and obviously to the discussion to form part of the argument or part of the understanding as to what is occurring in this uh, context. For Gibbon, the Roman world's tolerance of and respect for multiple religious. Uh, religion, rather, constituted one of the great strengths of the Pax Romana. And this was undermined or subverted in Israel by the monotheism of the Christians who gained control of Roman administration and through the instruction, through the introduction, rather, of monasticism and quietism, distracted the Roman youth from emulating the civic responsibilities and the military valor of their forebears. More importantly, assertive Christianity thrust religion to the forefront of the public life at a time when its general confinement to the private sphere engendered peace and stability through mutual tolerance. Taking one salient example <coughs> in the last century, the last quarter of a century, and particularly since new the new Labour government in 1997 and into currently conservative-led coalition administration in 2010, want to draw Evan Gibbons' insight into the role of religion in the breaking up of the one and the emergence of a new social order or perspective of our world. The example is that of assertive Islam and its contribution to the public discourse about the day-to-day -day life in post-imperial Britain. And this I want therefore to suggest that public discourses about the role of religion is significantly shaping the kind of parallel social life that is part of the post-imperial condition that Britain, not unlike a number of other European societies, is experiencing as a kind of an attack on what many may regard, many do regard, as the liberal open society. Let me begin with an exploration of three aspects then of the general context within which these developments are taking place. The first of these is the explanation of the obvious, namely 
But the use of the phrase, the open society, is borrowed from, as you know, the work of um, Karl Popper's very famous two-volume text, The Open Society and Its Enemies, in which Popper was concerned about contestations between liberalism and socialism and communism, liberalism on the one hand, socialism and communism on the other, or the open and the closed world perspectives of these philosophies in the modern world. One philosophy represented openness regarding thought, creativity, and tolerance of difference in matters religious, political, aesthetic, and so forth. The other represented closed boundaries and an absence of freedom on the part of the individual regarding disturbing or agnostic thought. These distinctions represented the intellectual boundaries established through conflicting but also reinforcing elements within the broader framework of intellectual and political discourses, at least from Plato to Marx, or from the Greek or Roman world to the world of NATO in the Cold War between what was called the communist and the Western worlds. The open and competitive societies that had emerged in West Europe and had sprouted across the North Atlantic North Atlantic world, espousing liberal values, were being threatened by non-liberal tenets, also represented by a threat of thought that runs from ancient to modern times, resulting in an intellectual and practical contestation between authoritarian and democracy. The first sought to control, direct, and provide for human thought and social action on a collectivist basis. The second emphasized and placed a premium on individual social thought and action, even if such a world may have appeared to be disordered. For Popper, the open society was a liberal democracy of what we may regard as the modern classic freedoms, based on the modern classic freedoms of speaking, writing, publishing, worshiping, organizing, and the right to owning private property. These rights were underpinned by equality within the law, with citizens having the right to change the law through the parliaments, the legislature, and the courts. In the decades since World War II, we have witnessed these rights revised and extended to include what T.H. Marshall called social or welfare rights in Europe, and over the last three or so decades, we have seen recognition of what can plummet one of our sociologists, so as a kind of a fourth dimension of rights enshrined in law as well as in social norms with regard to gay and lesbian choices in what Giddens has called the transformation of intimacy. More generally, traditional or historical liberal rights have been radically transformed to embrace demands for racial, ethnic, and gender equalities as a minimum standard by which to judge or to measure or judge human rights across the boundaries of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, generations, and nation identity. No doubt, as we continue to develop as humans, if we do, we'll create, reinvent, and extend new rights for ourselves and other animals, as well as the environment in which we are tenants and must therefore pass on to future generations. One of the great achievements of these developments has been the broadening of the scope 
for the spirit of toleration. But of course, the institutions and practices associated with the rise and ascendancy of toleration have evolved over time from the conflict of sets of values articulated through different customs, traditions, and their attendant practices. The downing of the Berlin Wall and the, end, and the ending of the Soviet Union, end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, signaled the end of the enemies of the open society as Karl Popper may have seen them in practice. In terms of thought, however, there might always be, and perhaps should always be, some enemies of the open society. Verily, this, is, this will be so because the open society is necessarily vulnerable. It tolerates differences of every kind, <coughs> including those values that will destroy the very foundations of liberalism and the society it seeks to build and to maintain. In the post-9-11 era, the tension or contradiction between openness and closeness is expressed as a tension between drawn between democratic participation and security in the socio-political order that places the highest premium on openness. Now, this problem has been variously stated and has, come, and has become one of the key aspects of general discussions about daily life in Britain, largely centered on questions about the multicultural society. Within this context, particular attention has been given first to Islam, through that religion's uh, public representation, part of its public representation. Second, radically changed attitudes towards and perspectives within uh, Christian communities. And third, the growth of faith schools funded from the public press. Of course, these points are specifically stated with regard to the British situation. Now, in this talk, while I'll deal with one of these points, in the book that I've mentioned that I'm currently writing, the, which will be entitled something such as The Making of uh, Forging of Post-Imperial British Society and State, I'll deal with a whole range of these different issues. Now, the second aspect of, with, with regard to general context and explanation context of this discussion is the recognition of the fact that religion is one of the most important factors that defines a person's, a community's, or a nation-state's identity or identities. And in the immediate post-imperial Britain, religion was taken more or less for granted, and it was understood that Britain was a society built on the Judeo-Christian traditions and structures. With sizable immigration <coughs> and settlement of people from various parts of the former empire, majority of British society adjusted or adapted a remarkable degree of sensitivity, in my view, to the religious impact or implications of having new communities, particularly in England's major cities. Some immigrants and the new communities contributed to or highlighted aspects of historical Christian traditions, while others brought almost entirely new dimensions to the religious configuration of Britain. These are now engaged, importantly, in an interplay for position in the construction of whatever 
post-imperial British society might look like in the near future. The change I'm talking about may be illustrated from the 2001 uh, National Census. Subsequent Office of National Statistics returns, as well as the work of uh, a chap by the name of David Perfect, but what he has done for our body in Britain, which is involved with equalities, by the name of the Equality and Human Rights uh, Commission. Now, in their focus on religion, the Office of National Statistics calculated that of the non-Christian population of the country, 51.9% were Muslims, those who were not, um, were non-Christian. 18.3% were Hindus, 11% were Sikhs, 8.7% Jewish, 4.9% Buddhist, 0.3% made up of any other religion. Of course, that's a very interesting group in Britain these days. It's the most interesting group. Mm -hmm. That's the most interesting That's the most interesting group. And particularly if you're interested in, you know, ancient Druidism and, and uh, pre-Christian religions of, of, of Europe and Britain. Um, so yes, they're the most interesting group, but a very uh, small one indeed. Now, um, Christians of all denominations made up 71.8% or almost two-thirds of the total population of the country, suggesting then that Britain is still predominantly a society based on Christian values, assumptions and presumptions. Of the then just over 57 million people in the country, 5.4 were of non-Christian backgrounds, while 22.9% either did not state their religion or stated that they had no religion. But for perfect, the other person I referred to here drew uh, together data from the annual population surveys for 2004-05 to 2008-09 to show a decline in the population survey, in the population uh, survey for those years. To show um, the claim that those who claim to be Christians, an increase in those who claim to be Muslims, as well as those who claim to be of no religion. Even so, his data revealed a slightly higher percentage of those who claim to be Christians. And his conclusion was that in 2008 to 9, 72.2, so it's not significant, of the British population claimed to be of that religion. This increase over the 2001 census figures may be due to the shift in the phrasing of the question, how the question is asked, because we know as um, historians, social scientists, etc., how you pose a question um, can determine what kind of answer you will receive. And the question which was asked in the theater was, uh, was this, what is your religion, even if you are not currently uh, practicing? That, of course, cost a very different kind, or invite a very different kind of, 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 of response and answers. Now, having said, made those two general points, the, I would say that these lead me to make some remarks leading to the question of whether religion is maybe becoming the chief, so to speak, enemy of the open society. 
but also, but also a key factor in the forging of a post-imperial Britain, British society, in which tolerance is replaced, not by intolerance, it's opposite, but by an intentional, benign division. If not over physical space, then about values informing the social, general, uh, public sphere. However, before giving a specific example of this, it's necessary briefly to explain what I mean by the notion of a post-imperial society. In the first place, it is a striking fact that whilst the notions of post-colonial, as I was saying earlier, post-colonial society and or the post-colonial condition have been the subjects of much discussion, given rise to a new discipline almost in humanities, um, uh, in social sciences, and so forth, there's been very little consideration given to the post-imperial experience. To be sure, there's been talk about the end of empire, and there's a whole series of literature books, articles around the end of empire, and the need for new roles or place for former colonial powers. What has been absent is a problematization of the post-imperial situation or condition, which in Britain has been characterized, I would argue, by at least the following. First, the uncertainty of the British future. The uncertainty. Um, one could go back to the statement by your, your statesman, Dean Hutchison, in the late 50s, of saying Britain has lost an empire. Its problem now is to find a role in the world. And I think one could look at British politics as a whole today and say that that problematic as stated by Atchison is still uh, very much in, in, in evidence. Secondly, the question of a reversion, a reversion of British society and state to the pre-imperial past. In other words, the breakup of Britain breakup of the United Kingdom as a unified state. Um, and of course, under the Blair administration, the philosophy, the philosophy, the policy of devolution is quite clearly today leading uh, to the example being that the separate nations that make up Britain, the English, the Scots, the Irish, um, the Welsh, should they all go their own ways? Um, well, in the case of the three major nations of, of the country, the, the Scots perhaps are by far the most vociferous um, in wanting to claim their independence from the rest of the country. And in a few years' time, they will hold a referendum to see whether the majority of Scots will wish to leave the rest of the United Kingdom. It is argued today that, and polls have shown, that should the, should the English population participate, people in England participate in that, in that referendum, the majority of English folks will say yes, the Scots <laughs> should leave the rest of the United Kingdom. Whereas in Scotland, the polls show that the Scottish Nationalist Party will <coughs> lose um, such a referendum. So it's um, an interesting uh, paradox. 
the other parts of the United Kingdom have very well remained. But the point I'm pointing to here is that the, the, the dramatic political change as a result of end of empire is something to be looked at. The growth of the, of the British empire out of the English empire coincided with very much with the union of uh, England and Scotland. And at the very end of that phase, we see the, the breaking up. There's a desire, in other words, of a, a return to the pre-imperial past. And can that occur? That is an internal matter. External, partially, but impinging very much on the British Oakland also, is what we may call the incursions by the barbarians. In past empires, when an empire is threatened, the enemy, the other, is always described as the barbarians. They are the force from without. Well, with the breakup of European empires, by which time people have become far too civilized to describe the other or others as barbarians, they became immigrants, they became people from outside. And of course, the uniqueness of European empires was that their imperial or colonial territories were at a distance, they were not a contiguous landmass. I say, for example, some other empires, Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire. And therefore, it was believed that they could easily withdraw from empire without much of an impact of the colonials influencing them. But the map of Europe, particularly those three great um, imperial powers of Britain, France, the Netherlands, increasingly so today of, of uh, Belgium as well, is that the very population context of these societies uh, is significantly changing. If the Romans sought to change the barbarians who were attacking the, the, the borders of their empire to invite them to change from being warriors to becoming settled farmers, I suppose we might say that in, in the post-period age in Europe, we've seen farmers, smallholders from the former empire, being changed into industrial uh, workers and laborers. A third dimension of this, of this shifting post-imperial um, society, is the racial reshaping of post-imperial um, European societies. And perhaps those three societies in particular that I mentioned very much at the forefront of that. As a result of these, obviously, you have therefore tremendous cultural diversity forth, and therefore a diversity of values in every imaginable ways. In simple things such as food, clothing, styles, important matters that again, so perhaps low key you might say, uh, such as the arts, such as the arts, literature, music, and so forth. But from the late 1980s into the early 1990s, we see as I've argued in several, several points, several places, tre tremendous momentous change in all of this. It's not only in terms of that broad cultural dimension, but in terms of values, of value systems. Um, I suppose the events that punctuated it was very much the, the publication of Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses and the response to that text in, in, in Britain by Muslims. It brought to the forefront of British society, and increasingly the British state, the importance <coughs> of values, of faith, 
of beliefs of religion. Because let us begin at what may be considered the beginning of the modern age. Roughly from the 16th century, the world has experienced the dominance of Europe and European civilization in its broadest sense. And only towards the end of the 20th, the beginning of the 21st centuries, are the other major centers of economic and political powers emerging to, to challenge that hegemony. During this historical period, what many writers, journalists, propagandists, and others have described as the West, established empires on the continents and islands of the seas. And these have been dismantled over the better period of the last century, particularly since 1947, however, with the independence of Pakistan and India. Colonial, colonialism, empires, political and other forms of visible and of physical dominance became unacceptable. And what Kwame Nkrumah dubbed neo-imperialism became the order of the day under the American eagle. In the midst of these developments, the post-colonial worlds of Africa, Asia, the Pacific, and the Caribbean gave birth to what has been described as new nations. But in fact, perhaps with the exception of the Caribbean region, most were old nations given birth to new nation states, which was an entirely different matter. <coughs> this gave new life to the historic nationalist movement that started in Europe in the 18th century. And the new nation states sought to establish what the first post-colonial state, the first post-colonial state when I asked my students which state that was, very often at a loss. And when I say we might consider the United States of America, which commenced with its 13 um, post-colonial states in, um, in the Atlantic seaboard, what they sought to do and what other nations, how other nations uh, followed their example. They reconfigured their identity through imaginative lawmaking, new symbols, new icons, etc. It's not surprising, therefore, that if you look at the coins or the mottos of some of the new nation states and that of the American, you can see where it is borrowed from, quite often unconsciously, not something that people literally are, are, are very much of, um, aware of. But having said all that, and the reason um, one had to go into aspects of these, really to stress that I want to look at whatever I say about religion, um, not so much for the sake of looking at religion per se, but very much within the broader perspective of, its, of their implication, religion's implication for the forging of a new social and political uh, system and, and order. Therefore, I've cast it, or I'm seeking to cast it, to present it within that wider uh, framework. But instead of looking at what is all part of common general public discourse in the Atlantic world over Islam, particularly at the larger um, aggregate level of the political, I want to look at how, uh, given a simple example rather, simple example in, uh, for the rest of this talk, about how, to show how um, ordinary things of day-to-day -day life 
they're being challenged. Um, and posing problems, opportunities, um, but under the general rubric of challenges for what was a relatively uh, um, unified, assured social and political system. And I call this the challenge of assertive, assertive uh, Islam. So I would say then that this point may be clearly illustrated by the key issue of the Nijab, the complete covering of the female body, except for the eyes, that dominated the national news in Britain in 2006, once taken just a specific instance. This was the furore over the wearing of the veil in the, in the classroom by an assistant teacher, Asia in a town called Newbury, <coughs> West Yorkshire. As the newspapers reported it, Mrs. Asme from Cardiff was employed by Kirkley's council in Yorkshire to work as an assistant in a classroom with another teacher at Hadfield Church of England School, school owned by one like Church of England, to the state uh, church. You, uh, you don't have a church at State Church of this country. Jefferson makes sure of that. But of course, um, in, Britain, in the central part, a central aspect of, of, of the state, the Church of England, or you would call it here the Anglican Church. At her interview for the Post, she reportedly did, did not wear her veil, even though at least one male person was present. The leaders at the school suspended her from her duties after concluding that the cover of her whole face, particularly her mouth, which was considered important in the language class where she worked, disadvantaged the children. The school also allowed Mrs. Asmund to wear her veil in the staff common room and in the school's corridors. The matter went on, the, the, the matter went to an um, employment tribunal in October 2006, and the school's position was upheld, whereupon Mrs. Asman and her lawyers threatened to take their case on appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. For a week or so in mid-October uh, that year, the case dominated the front pages of the newspapers and had top priority on radio and television news comments. The newspapers carried pictures of the entirely covered 24-year-old woman, except her eyes, clad in black, and although I do not now recall any references to Islamist, Islamist bombings, the absence of an identifiable face conveyed a sense of fear and of terror, not of trust and friendship. The school spoke about how this attire created barriers. And this position was taken up by a number of leading Muslim individuals, such as the local MP for that, the Labour MP for that area. Dr. Sadiqi, a leader of the so-called Muslim Parliament of Great Britain, stressed that wearing a full veil was inappropriate in a school classroom and pointed out that few Muslims actually wear a full veil. Phil Willis, who was then the Minister of State responsible for race relations, called for Mrs. Asmi's sacking 
and reiterating that the interests of the children were paramount. Several leading members of the government, including the then Prime Minister Tony Blair, I suppose you've heard of Tony Blair here, our present Prime Minister coming here recently, I was told, we, we were told in Britain, no one knew who he was. <laughs> People thought that he did not look like Tony Blair, and so who was now Prime Minister of England? At that time, Tony Blair was very much Prime Minister, and he had something to say himself. He saw the veil as a mark of separation, his own words, a mark of separation. The Daily Express, not a paper sympathetic to Mrs. Asme's cause, reported Mrs. Asme as saying that, I quote, integration requires people like me to be in the workplace so that people can see that we are not to be feared or mistrusted. I will continue to uphold my religious beliefs and urge Muslims to engage in dialogue with the wider community. The same paper's editorial for later on in October had a brief and clear message about the matter. This is the editorial of the Daily Express. Aisha Azmi seems determined to pursue a warped agenda against the Church of England school that employs her all the way to the European court, and the taxpayer will have to foot the legal bills. It is, too, is it too much, the paper asks, is it too much to hope that moderate Muslims will see what really lurks beneath this woman's veil? Not a victim with a genuine grievance, but a politically motivated extremist who is doing terrible damage to their standing in the eyes of the long-suffering British public. The Daily Telegraph, in its editorial of the same day, was even shorter. It was simply entitled, Nagy Nonsense. And the paper declared the veil to be a according political and cultural statement and not a religious practice, much indeed as, as several Muslim leaders pointed out. Now, just as this debate in the media began to fade and the country appeared to be moving on to the next item for the day of the week, the Bishop of Rochester, the Reverend Michael Nazir Ali, and the Bishop of Rochester, of course, the Bishop of the Church of England, entered the fray. In an interview with the Sunday Times, the bishop criticized some Muslims for having a dual psychology. Dual psychology. On the one hand, they claim that they are victims, and on the other hand, they appear to desire domination over others. So he yeah. Consequently, militant British Muslims, he went on, objected to Britain's interventions where Muslims dominate other groups or themselves such as Iraq or Afghanistan, <coughs> but will support intervention where it is a situation of Muslims being dominated by other groups, such as in parts of the Balkans. Perhaps, however, the more significant point that the bishop made was that the values, institutions, and general practices in the country derived, he argued, from Christian traditions, heritages, and should be defended. That was in October. In mid-November, the most senior black person in the Church of England, the second in hierarchy of the total Anglican community, the Archbishop of York, the Reverend Dr. John Sertam, 
He now entered the fray. First, he criticized Birmingham City Council. Birmingham is the second major city in Britain. Criticized that city council for passing a resolution to change the name of Christmas to Winter. I'm thinking, is Christmas, Christmas in this country or is it Winter? But argued that it should not, presumably, to make the festivities inclusive of the citizens, of the city's citizens and residents who were from other faith communities, such as Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, and others. The second point made by the Archbishop was that to wear the veil in public was not to conform to public decency. Uh, his word, public, word is public decency. Black Bishop Nazir Ali, Archbishop St. Thomas, saw the public display of the veil as yet another indication of the undermining of our heritage. Now, with the veil furor fresh in the public mind, this intervention by two princes of the established Church of England caught the nation's attention and received widespread coverage in the media. Apart from the fact that the Archbishop of York and the Bishop of Rochester are senior leaders in the church, these men's individual biography and backgrounds gave their interventions added force. Nasir Ali's grandfather converted from Islam to Catholicism. The bishop himself uh, was born and brought up in Pakistan, Pakistan, and he has been closely engaged in discussions with what has become known as Muslim scholars. St. Thomas was a refugee from the dictatorship of Idi Amin in Uganda in 1974 and also appear to have close knowledge of the scholar's explanation of Islam. While Nasiali represented the more conservative wing of the church, Sentamu was widely seen as coming from the progressive and radical elements of that faith community. Indeed, in Brandeis, if you follow these things, at the moment, um, the the Church of England is voting as to who should be the next Archbishop of Canterbury um, before they put some two names to the Prime Minister um, to the Queen as to who should succeed. And St. Thomas' name is um, the forerunner um, and has been so for some time. And so that the politics of the Church uh, are, are rather interesting at this very moment. But the fact that they agree on what both these gentlemen they agreed on what was seen as a major compromise of the majority Christian-derived customs, traditions, and values is itself important. But of far greater significance is the fact that they are both, so to speak, outsiders. And it is not unusual for outsiders who accept the value system of a major culture to be more attentive about these matters than many who are born within that particular, that particular culture. This point then may be reinforced by reference to the, to the views of a third important um, voice in this discussion. That is of um, Sir Trevor Phillips. Trevor Phillips, born in Britain of course, but a Guyanese back background was chairman of the former Commission for Racial Equality, a very powerful um, 
creates a governmental body, and became the first chairperson of the Equalities Commission, to which I referred wrong. The Equalities Commission bringing together issues about race and ethnicity, about gender, and about disability, uh, sexual preference, uh, uh, etc. So it's a very powerful position. Phillips brought to these positions a new note in official, in official Britain. This was that multiculturalism is problematic and can be divisive. His general message was that multicultural Britain should seek to maximize those things that are shared across communities and minimize what they do not share. While he made these points from the time he became chair of the CRE uh, several years ago, and there were several occasions at which he passionately but reasonably pressed these points. Perhaps one of the clearest of such statements on his part was its piece in the Sunday Times in late October of 2006. The piece was flagged on the first page of the paper, but it was the article itself, seven pages later, that drew attention. It was headed, Talk Now or Read the Whirlwind, and centered by a large photograph, presumably in a neighborhood with a significant number of Muslims. Central to the picture were three major figures facing the camera. Apart from their eyes, the, two, the key two figures were completely covered in black clothing. Just behind them was an equally strident young woman who appeared to be of an Asian or Middle East background, fashionably dressed in a mixture of Western and Eastern clothing with full face reveal. The contrast is sharp, emphasizing images of the open society and the darkness, secretiveness, distrustfulness of the closed society. The two cloaked figures convey a sense or consciousness of the person behind them, that while they are allowed to see other members of the public, members of the public are not permitted to see them. There is a sense of distinction, of fear and distrust of a far away time in these two figures. The opposite is true of the confident young woman who appears to be going about her affairs in an open, confident, trustworthy, trustworthy manner. One of Phillips's sentences around these was printed in bold and asserted that we cannot just extol the virtues of our diversity. To do so is to ignore the feelings of the many millions for whom the frictions of diversity are much more evident than its benefits. Now this captured in many ways the essence of his argument, that diversity should not be such that it divides, and invited a debate about the issues so that Muslims could feel less defensive about identity and other communities who do not live in fear of them. I want to show that example because if one were to say, going back to where we started with Edward Gibbon, where were he around today? What might the greatest story say? I wager that he would say something like this. The ages, the epochs, the eras, they get shorter. And the empires can no longer be cast in centuries and in millennia. 
The Roman model of a thousand years in the West and far longer in the East no longer holds. Modern empires may be far more powerful, but they last in bursts of limited times. The empire upon which the sun never set came to an end in our own lifetime. But this ending marked a beginning, and that beginning, in the context of Britain itself, is still unfolding. That is my interest. Thank you. So I have a, a couple of uh, questions. Um, one is, um, you know, what, what strikes me is, is, is as you describe um, the, you know, the tensions in, in British society. Um, I, I was struck by um, the, the fact that you know there's a, there's also a national party that is emerging, um, and with its um, you know, quite aggressive uh, stands, and, uh, sometimes very uh, pleasant uh, expressions. So I was wondering how uh, would that phenomenon fit into your portrait? Um, and and the second thing, you know, as a historian, uh, you know, I, I think that the uh, tensions between uh, you know, uh, entering communities and, and so forth, and existing communities are are a permanent feature of every society at every time. I mean, the notion of a stable society, a golden age, uh, is never really uh, you know, the only golden age that will ever is the one that there was. You know, the one that you that you just departed from. And so, um, you know the. You know, I, when I, you know, it's not that the English, England does not um, have tensions, uh, you know, within some of its, uh, uh, you know, modern communities. On the other hand, uh, you know, both in England, in Holland, and even in France, where things are at the, really at the most, uh, what strikes me is uh, more than anything is the absence of conflict. You know, that the conflict really is not spilled into any major thing. I mean, you know, we're talking about a woman, you know, wearing a hijab. I mean, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not, it's, it, this is not a very uh, central component. You know, the, the uh, you know, in Holland, you know, there was a couple of more aggressive things. There were the story, of course, of the filmmaker and the politician. but. But even in Holland, uh, you know, in, in France, where the, where the, uh, uh, this was, I mean, in France we have much more segregation and to be sure we have greater tensions. But even there, what strikes me, and I think that we have to acknowledge, is that there's very little real con violent conflicts. Very, you know, that for the most part, it's a minor thing. So, you know, how would you respond to those two? Um, very superficial observations. No, not at all superficial. Profound <laughs> observations, I would say. Um, and I think that I share, I share a great deal of, of, of those views. I think that in comparative historical terms and comparative contemporary terms, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Starting with your second uh, <coughs> uh, uh, contribution, there, that the tensions are 
seen in a you know, wider perspective of things and not um, earth-shattering. Yeah. And this is what I would say that the adjustment on the part of the majority population <coughs> as well as newcomers to those societies um, shows part of what is what do occur when you come to a historical juncture where significant changes are indeed occurring. And I would say that the making of post-imperial societies in those three instances are of historical great, historically great importance because in all of those situations, and that the greater part of my argument is that during the imperial age, those populations didn't know each other at all. Um, you'd think that if you take some other models of empire, where the conquered and the conqueror gets all mixed up together, and after a while, something else emerges. Well, in the case of the great modern European empires, that wasn't so, precisely because their empires were overseas empires, uh, not land um, empires in terms of contiguous boundaries. And so for the first time, apart from administrators, missionaries, soldiers, and some traders, <coughs> some adventurers, um, the actual peoples within the, the context of, of the imperial order and the colonial order were actually meeting. And the adjustments that um, I think are going on is something that should not be blown out of um, proportion. And indeed, this is one of my strong arguments, both in the thing I'm writing, as well as what I regard as sort of volume one of that same theme, my 1991 ethnic nationalism post the So I entirely agree with that. Though at the moment when these things are being lived, in the sociological term, people do see them right. as being a profound and a correct, I've seen them that way. But my call in the British debate is really to try to see things in the longer view of things. Um, and that's why I want to cast it in the notion of the making of post-imperial social order. Which means that for the majority older population, uh, I deliberately put it that way, because particularly in the instance of Britain, there are very few in the population who can claim such a longevity that they've always been there. It's always been a series of conquests of settlements and so on. Um, the, the very name of England itself is that of, of immigrants who came in and then took over the, most of the island and named it their own. So it's not a new <coughs> So that I'm, I'm, at, I'm very much at home with your arm. Your first point, the, you mentioned the National Party and, and the, the extreme right, generally, I think you have in mind. Um, in, in my own writings, I've not dealt very much with that. Why? And I think I've not done so partly because much of the discussions about um, contemporary modern Britain in these matters, a lot of the literature focuses on them. Oh. And I feel that, that you're looking, related to, your, to the second point which I've just responded to, that they are not that significant. I agree, I mean, they're not, but they exist. But they exist, they do. But they're not as significant as... The National Party, you know, they're kind of this, this right-wing, not nice. Yeah. They used to be extremely right-wing, they still are extremely right-wing and nasty. Now they're trying to be extremely right-wing and nice. 
They want to say that they want to attract. I mean, they're going as far as Le Pen's group in France. They want to attract <coughs> immigrants themselves into Germany. But, um, and to claim that immigrants themselves would like to return to where they're from. Now, of course, the immigrants they're talking about are not immigrants at all. These are people who were born in France, in Britain, etc. The, their parents, yes, were immigrants, but they were not. And their policy, obviously, is that um, the part of the main spokesperson is that um, all who are not British should be well, not English, basically, should be asked to leave. But of course, the irony of that is that um, Hensig and Horsa, the first two Anglos who entered Britain in the post-Roman period, were two brothers from central Germany who were invited by the Celts to help to defend them against other defenders. These two brothers came along, saw the place, thought it was a good place to live, sent back for their brothers. The Mangroves side, the English, and this, these are the Anglo-Saxons themselves. So everybody eventually would have to leave Britain if that argument was to be followed to its logical conclusion. So the extreme right, um, in my view, and this is what I say, I've never, apart from passing sentences, I don't think I've written as much as a paragraph, really, on the, on the, on the extreme right, because I think that part of the great strength of the British majority population and the political institutions is that these groups are so much on the fringe that um, apart from causing suffering to <coughs> individuals and small groupings of people at particular times, in terms of the impact on the overall British political, social and political traditions, it's not there. I think the closest that it came to having an impact was the extreme right wing within the Conservative Party. And in, in, from the late 70s to, to the end, to the end of the 80s, the heyday of Margaret Thatcher's um, ascendancy. Uh, in that, some of her ministers, um, some of the departments of state, actually took on board some of the, the um, ideology um, of of Thatcherism, which is not the economic side of Thatcherism, but what we call the racialist side of Thatcherism. Um, but even there, even there, that's been sort of neutralized and backed away from some of those extreme views in practice, though they use the language, but in practice, they don't go that far. So, so that's the. I'm pleased that you asked me that question, actually, because I've never had to actually say so clearly why it is that I don't deal with that, with those with those elements. Mm. Uh, I think you you hand first. Behind. Yes, thank you. Um, it seems to me that when you talk about post-imperial, <coughs> the entire post-imperial West, that one of the most striking features is the uh, the self-loathing. That we have that there is you know the fear of other likely has an evolutionary concept mm -hmm. and, it, and it cuts across all kinds of societies and all periods of history. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that what we have in the West today is a um, deep and growing self-loathing, um, mm -hmm. a, a notion that the West is in fact responsible for all of the world's ills mm -hmm. and bears more than a share of responsibility and repentance and. and even people who do not put themselves at that extreme still sit around and say that, that 
guys like Noam Chomsky or Edward Said are meeting intellectuals who deserve to be taken <coughs> seriously. Maybe they go a little too far, but their basic points are out there. But when you, when you collide this loathing of self with fear of other, you get a vicious cycle where fear of other then creates shame and drives you further into self-loathing. And, and I, I think we're beginning to see this cycle play itself out in, in some very dangerous ways uh, throughout the West. It makes me wonder, as I was listening to you speak, whether in fact um, post-imperialism is as much a primary cause of this as, say, Hannah Arendt credited imperialism with being in the rise of the last wave of it. I wonder if you could comment on that. No, there's a lot, there's a lot there. I think, and I think um, it's, um, it is something that is very noticeable, certainly in Britain, of, of self-loving, of, of, of shame. And if you consider that one of the last major speeches that um, Margaret Thatcher gave as Prime Minister, I think of mastery in Holland was to say that we should be proud of how we explored, how we discovered, I think it was, the world, uh, conquered the world and gave it language, etc., etc. And soon thereafter, a, a rapid sort of vote fast, a turn away from, from that kind of perspective. So much so that, for example, you know, Winter, <coughs> Christmas, um, um, and there, I mean the one example I gave you. There are myriads of examples uh, of all kinds of things. The one that comes really to mind is uh, a Christian, a devout Christian woman wearing the cross um, in a public space in terms of I'm going to work, and that's not permitted. Whereas um, British society has done so much to accommodate the wearing of a turban. The, the, at one time, even the carrying of the of the, um, of the sword, you know, in Sikhism, one of the five Ks, um, is crucial for the devout Sikh to carry, be able to carry the sword. Whereas in India, one of the objections of the, <coughs> of the, of the, of the Sikhs in India was that, that in India itself, with their land, their homeland, they were not allowed in public spaces any longer to carry the sword. Whereas in Britain, there was an adjustment to that. They can do so. Now, it, so in other words, there's an accommodation of, of the other. And, 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 and I think perhaps with some of these incorrectness. Whereas some things which have been historically established, and I think part of that debate about the Nigeria and so on is around that. Um, and it's pulling leading churchmen who used to keep out of the political sphere, entering that sphere increasingly. Um, and it, it's, yes, there is, I think, a sense of um, self-worthing, a, a loss, as some would say, of, of, of confidence. Um, now, it brings me to a theoretical point, I suppose, when I've long been uneasy with the concept of um, the West and the rest. And um, when I try to explain this, I tend to do so in terms of saying, well, what, is it, what we now have, what we have now received as the West, um, shouldn't be seen as being constructed entirely by the West. That it isn't being, um, if we take, simply if we take the, the, the significant aspect of, say, the 
United States, North American society, take Caribbean society, that these societies emerge very largely out of, not entirely, but largely out of Northwest Europe and other parts of Europe, and in the case of the Caribbean and Africa, and also parts of Asia. And yet, the, when we say the West, I think unconsciously, subconsciously, we have a certain type of West in mind. And that is, if you would like, perhaps the West from the Renaissance through to the Enlightenment, which was a West which was not in the common imagination so much linked to the rest of the world. Though in that, of course, um, I think a number of stories are question, because if you consider the great discoveries uh, um, and, uh, and return to the ancient world after as part of the Renaissance, that was very much because of connections with other cultures. So that the, the and one of the examples I usually use with, with in, in discussions and classes, so we consider the development of democracy um, as an important contribution of the the West. How was that constructed? Okay, seeds might have started in Europe, but it is the partly the struggle of others from outside the West who were brought into the West, who have um, helped to develop that, to hone that. And therefore, if, for example, <coughs> others are to be said to be part of that, you have to consider that it is not a narrow definition and therefore the division, the, right, the rigid division, um, you was in the phrase from um, Stuart Hall's sort of notion of, and, and, um, and Said of the, the West and the rest. I, don't, I think that that's, that's a false dichotomy. So I, um, I, I want to share, I want to say that yes, I share a sense, and it's one that one wants to try to understand as to why it's happened. I go back to my great friend Edward Gibbon, because I, only as a sort of looking at a model. I mean, given historians of, um, of, of Roman decline, would disagree very profoundly in a lot of what Gibbon had to say, but he still remains perhaps the central historian of a number of points about the four. And although he, de he defines his work as the four, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But a great deal of his work is actually to do with the post-imperial Roman society that emerged thereafter. Um, and it's that aspect that I find uh, uh, fascinating. What I find there, of course, is that the rigid division that we tend to think ordinarily of Roman and non-Roman is in fact uh, not a true depiction at all. The loss of confidence is something which I, the, 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 the paraphrasing I gave at the beginning is very much about that point. That the sons of the Roman aristocracy, begun as they converted to Christianity, became ascetic. And asceticism is something that Gibbon attacks viciously because instead of becoming great soldiers and statesmen and poets and intellectuals and writers, they retreated to the monastery for monks. Monks are passive. Um, they're thinking and so forth. They're passive. They withdraw themselves from society. 
And in a sense, it's kind of a denial that the imperial past that Rome had built had anything to do with it. And Christianity allowed, and given its interpretation of that transition, a way out of that. And I suppose that given we're wrong, you could say that, in a sense, happening. I don't know if it's happening in America yet, because I don't suppose you describe America as it's not a post-imperial society in the way that those examples we've talked about certainly <coughs> are. But I don't know if that sort of shed any light on that, but I think that certainly is a, is a point of, um, to observe. Well, well, there is, I mean, there is a phenomenon that's becoming increasingly apparent in that um, many of the, uh, you know, we, we have political movements that are extremely, uh, extremely involved in fighting for rights on behalf of the other within their own country. Yes. Who, who have no concern for the rights of other outside their countries. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, in the United States at least, many of the most vocal, let's say, women's rights groups or gay rights groups will not utter a word about the treatment of women or, or gay citizens in large parts of the world. Mm. Right? So it is, it, it, it is this very interesting phenomenon that, that, that you see where you know, the, um, the spokespeople for the feminist movement will not criticize Islamic countries that treat <coughs> as chattel mm. or execute their gay citizens. Well, it's, it's probably, in, in, perhaps in the European context, maybe a little more problematic, uh, more complex rather, because I think probably post, one, of the post, one of the characteristics of post-imperial society is that in Europe at the moment is that people, these societies can't entirely cut themselves off yeah. from, the, from the former colonial. And therefore, uh, in a way that probably with the United States maybe somewhat different, and that we're not, um, American colonialism is different from the European This was a physical in terms of administration, whereas the, um, apart from temporarily um, here and there. Uh, so there's still strong linkages which, 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 which are there. And so I would say that that depiction may be less strong with, Europe, with regard to, to feminists uh, Etc. in the European context. In fact, quite often they might go to the extreme. But there is one thread of thought there which is important, and that is uh, cultural relativism, that we might call it, where people will say we do not wish to critique, we might not agree with that, we do not do it ourselves, we do not condone it, but we don't want to criticize it either, because it's their right to be different, it's their, it's their right to. Um, their culture after all is different from ours. I think there's a benign aspect of that, but there's also um, perhaps a malign aspect of it, where it's, 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 um, it can be dangerous. But I, I did have, you, you had a question, a, a comment about <coughs> Yeah, no, my comment was um, a follow-up on the question about the, the, the perception that there was um, an absence of an absence of overt violence um, and overt conflict, and I think I, I understand that I understand that point. But I think one, one has to be uh, careful because 
you know, in the pre-civil rights era in the United States, in the South, there was also a relative absence of violence because the threat of violence was so overwhelming that it really there was very little struggle until the civil rights changed that equation. So, and I would also say that the threat of violence, for example, um, in the intellectual sphere, on with the example of Salman Rushdie, um, probably suppressed countless numbers of publications, which counterfactually we can never know. Um, but that threat hung in the air for anyone who would publish something that would, you know, that might have been that. And we know overtly that the, you know, the most um, vociferously um, un, you know, uncouth and unpolitically correct television show in the United States, these. Um, I actually don't know the name of it, but it's also one, one that was that had, has no problem of giving any offense. Was fearful of giving giving, giving offense to Islamic religious preachers, but had no offense. I mean, does incredibly offensive things. So my point is, sometimes the overt absence of, of violence, um, you know, it is is merely an indication of an overwhelming threat of violence that suppresses uh, rebellion. Yes, that's a very good point indeed. So. I, although, although much of my work last 25 years in sociology, um, but my actual training was in political science. Uh, but, but there is a theme in political uh, science uh, along those lines, where um, political and social behavior are not conditioned by, as I said, by the very sense of fear um, of structures that are there. And um, and so it's it's like the analysis of political apathy it, it, because people may not vote and may not voice their views. It doesn't mean, in other words, the visible the visibility of political apathy doesn't mean that there is political apathy <laughs> because in fact quite often people who, are, who appear to be politically <coughs> are the people. Almost politically conscious. Uh, not always, it wasn't quite often. Uh, okay, so the point I think you're making here is, is certainly that. I think when we were discussing earlier on the point of the relative absence of overt conflict in, 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 in a sense, I think we had in mind very much more the, the, the attitude of the majority culture and population. But what you're bringing up there, I think, is the impact of what, if I understand correctly, the impact of what any, any player on the field might threaten. <coughs> and certainly in the Russian instance, um, there are quite a number of people probably who, within Islam, outside Islam, um, might have published or not. And think of that young woman in Holland who has been tremendously courageous in, um, in coming out and publishing stuff, making statements, um, with the risk of her, of her life. It's quite important and probably you're right. And that may well be others who would perhaps do the same. Now, I link into what I want to, 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 to explore with, in terms of day-to-day um, relations and activities, such as the case I posted at length here. And to see what kind of impact that is having um, on people with legitimate positions 
Quellum retreat because they feel that to 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 uh, to, to, to voice a position um, may be unacceptable. They might be wrongly described. I, I, in my own case, I put it this way: that I, in discussions, I've been saying I was saying for the last two years that what would I do? The university I work at has a lot of uh, students of the Muslim background, uh, a lot of them girls. Uh, quite a number of them wore. Um, they didn't go as far as to bring the veil. Uh, a handful probably, but they wore to declare and to identify themselves, etc. Sometimes very stylishly, below their various um, outward wear. They're wearing jeans and shorts, pants like anybody else. But, um, but the I, I then, in a discussion with colleagues and with others, saying, that, what would I do in terms of my own value system structure if I were given a student who wore the veil? Because in academic in, um, discourse, you're looking at a person when you're discussing an issue, and you can't see the person. How do you conduct such a debate? Um, one of our leading politicians, Jack Straw, the former Secretary of State for the Home Department. Um, and as you know, the British system, you're, you're, you're first a member of parliament, then you might become a secretary of state or whatever, prime minister, And in his own constituency, a lot of his constituents are Muslim. And he made the point a couple of years ago that he felt distinctly uncomfortable, uncomfortable when any of his individual constituents come in to see him discuss their problems if they're wearing the veil, because you can't see the person. And I would feel that as, as, an, as an academic, having a discourse with an individual, if they were to come in the same way, I never had the experience, but what would I do? Now, would, would I want to avoid conflict, potential conflict, a quarrel, um, a debate, etc.? Or, or do I just ignore that and get on and teach uh, the student? I hope I would have had the courage to say, look, um, I'm afraid my value structure is such that I can't have a discussion with you uh, if you have the veil on. There are other instances where it doesn't matter, perhaps, but in the context of a classroom, does it uh, uh, matter? Um, I, another small example, I don't want to alarm, a small example of that uh, recently, last week, um, discussing with our uh, daughter-in-law, who's a school teacher um, in London, and she was saying that a, one particular student, a uh, pupil of hers in the school, who's a Muslim background, refuses to attend certain classes that he considers to be um, um, what is it, immoral, an ethical for to attend. Classes such as um, teaching about, about the human body, um, what was the other example? Um, but similar things like that, all, the whole school children are expected to, to attend. Yes, another example was that attending um, a careers advisory meeting. Now, it's, in other words, a person perhaps, you wonder what has these things to do with religion as opposed to perhaps other, cons other considerations. Now, quite often people will back away. And this links to your point as well of a loss of confidence and feel well, I did not challenge, uh, uh, challenge that. 
So I think you, you, you know, we're both right in terms of that tripartite discussion that we both had, but perhaps we're looking at slightly different aspects of that wider problematic. I'd like to pick up on, on this conflict question and ask whether you think um, the rise of assertive religion will in fact begin to promote violence um, in the UK or in other Western countries. And I think of it in the context of some of the um, taglines, if you will, uh, of your talk, where you started by indicating that we're replacing tolerance, that we're having challenges to ordinary daily life. Well, those two things, when they break down, are things that generally result in social violence. And the description you then gave of your sort of religion as being uh, certain flashpoints in society, um, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on whether in some medium and longer term horizon, uh, an increased rise in sort of religion will lead to social violence. Yes, it's a, that's again another question to that. So I'll come back to those two in a moment. Should I take that first? Sure, as, as you wish. Is it? Um, I think the reason Cambridge was keen to republish one of about 20 years of um, recent, um, without a word being changed, they haven't said it. They simply wrote it and said we're publishing this uh, a book and we really won't, don't want to change anything at all uh, in it, other than to say it was first published in 1991. And I think one of the reasons that in that book I argued that what I saw in Britain then, in the 80s, um, with aspects of multiculturalism, aspects, uh, not the philosophy, not the aspiration, but part of the policies of multiculturalism in Britain, could lead to the kind of divisions such that we could begin to have racial riots in which up to then the only one that, um, in, in the 20th century was really way back in 1919 which um, but but the other instances in british history have been described as race riots were not really race riots at all i won't go into the argument about that they were they were really struggles against heavy authority but of course as you know in the in the last several years, a number of northern British cities, there have been, and I think this is very significant, there have been a number of what in India they would call communal rights, where one community is pitched against another, neighbors pitched against others. In the past, it was communities pitched against the police principle, against others, against, against authority. And that, I think, marks a new moment. And I think the argument that I made 20 years ago, slowly, a number of commentators, they jumped to the opposite end, saying, well, multiculturalism is entirely bad, and that's what's caused it. My argument was much more nuanced than that, and still is. I, I think multiculturalism, as I would say, in terms of aspirations, in terms of philosophy, is, 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 is benign, it's, it's good. It's, the policies sometimes that flow from that, which, um, like any, like any philosophy, any um, aspirations, which needs to be considered very carefully, is the kind of society that emerges. I think, therefore, 
to come directly to your point, I would say that any kinds of divisions that we begin to to make and to cast in conflict have the potential, has the potential. I'm not saying we need to, but it has the potential. Particularly when people are casting conflict over resources to to cause physical um, conflict as well. Not just a matter of, of, of value conflict, but of physical in a rich society where um, there's always the, the economic way we go to contain these, these may be um, managed, these may be um, abolished, even. but when it comes to sharp conflict over, over, over scarce resources, then indeed those are likely to. And you see this in other places, if you move to other continents, so go to the subcontinent, go to Africa, um, go to parts of um, a range of societies, and you do see that. A rich society such as Belgium, it's a rich society such as Belgium, the division between the two major communities are not insignificant, but they have the resources to be able to manage it. If Belgium were to become a number of um, underdeveloped, and non-industrialized societies where resources are extremely scarce, then they could also get the same sort of conflict. So I think that these are things with, in terms of policy, in terms of policy, um, as carefully to be, to, be, um, to, to, to be considered. I think as well as academics and intellectuals that we have a role to play. And in my own work, I've attempted, I've taken on board from time to time in the past, uh, you know, the policy dimension, the, the series, uh, the, the name of the series as well as the society here is GAP. It also brings in more, not only the intellectual discussion, but also the policy dimension. Uh, so, I go back to you. Sorry, sorry, you were going to say that. Okay. So, first of all, thank you very much for your presentation. It's a, a rich presentation. And I'm not entirely sure uh, how to begin the, the, my comments, but I'll, I'll just free flow and take what you wish. I think, in a sense, we have reached a period of uh, extreme violence. I think the quote callers, the hate that they're not speak his name is anti Semitism. And the quintessential other in the history of Europe were the, the Jew. And today, if you walk the streets of uh, Ashdod and Ashkelon, you hear French. The communities, the, the Jewish communities of Sweden are leaving. The Norwegian Jewish community has uh, practically gone. The same in Belgium. In France, there's a situation for the Jewish community that, that is, I would say is becoming or is borderline uh, a massive exodus out of the rise of anti-Semitism. Yet in certain circles, this will be news to many people and many informed people. Um, so I think that's to put the context. I think there's, there's a layer of globalization, the marginalization of uh, people in many societies, the breakdown of nation states, the failure perhaps of nation states. And we're seeing the rise of, uh, I would say, revolution. Uh, 
CNN and the Obama administration have been calling it the Arab Spring and a move to democracy. I see it as a rise of a reactionary social movement which is using, and I'm choosing my words carefully, genocidal anti-Semitism as a central element of its rise to come. These are people who are literally praying publicly for the extermination of the Jews, not just the Israelis and the Zionists, but also the Jews. So, what becomes an issue of dress, which I think is a fascination, by the way, of the British sort of uh, multicultural discourse, the ethnic community and their dress. It's a, it's a fascinating thing in the UK. Whereas in other parts of the world, interculturalism, multiculturalism, policies, places, emphasis, elsewhere. But dress is a very important thing. But what you do in, in London with a Muslim female student, whether she would wear a hijab or a veil, the context is very different today in Cairo, today in Gaza, today in Tehran. If the rise of the Brotherhood succeeds in Egypt, then God knows what's happening in Syria, speaking of violence, a violence that we can't wrap our heads around. Is this the, the Spain of the contemporary moment? Is this what's happening? Who's going to win? What does that mean for women, for minorities? Who knows? But for, for a woman, perhaps, it will not be possible to go to university in these nations, in these societies, if, if this form of uh, religion dominates, which it appears that there's a good chance that it could. So my question, I guess it's a provocative question, so given the important work that's been done on critiquing empire and race and ethnicity and nation and uh, identity, which I have, I, I don't mean to minimize it in a way, it's crucial, the work of Edward Said and others. What happens, Stuart Hall, Paul Gilroy, what happens if the barbarian is at the door? <laughs> really, are we capable of distinguishing between uh, the, the horrible side of modernity, slavery, the Holocaust, uh, the, you know, putting the other such a, a category um, to critique that, and yet, if this rise of, say, a reactionary movement begins to influence the, the West, and the West being Europe and North America with all of its communities, um, what happens in the interrelated age of globalization if these communities begin to espouse the same ideology? Maybe they, they don't have the power to, but we're living in a global age. Uh, I'm, I'm, so I'm bringing all these points to, uh, to your attention, uh, perhaps just to, if you can comment on it. And I think Popper's analysis is also very important in terms of parallel social lives. Uh, where do we draw the boundary of the private and the public sphere of identities and identity politics? Well, and so, so Charles, you remember that's another talk there. Yeah. <laughs> so when you go out, you're going to ask me to come back to give that. But, but, but I, I, I um, these things are complex and difficult, are they not? In the sense that when we talk about this, we have certain historical and social contexts uh, in, in, in mind. Um, I, I have stated to uh, perhaps wrongly, of that even wider uh, dimension um, that you that you brought on board. Um, 
um, of that part of the story, which is undoubtedly part of that picture. Um, I was thinking of Stanley Elkins's work on the Holocaust, uh, more than Arendt's, um, and I was thinking of giving the other paper, and of how Elkins looked at the, 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 the um, concentration camps and the Holocaust and compared it to um, the Atlantic African slavery, um, to historical moments in contrasting too. I'm thinking, well, you know, is how do we relate those to, to the contemporary situation in Japan? I don't know, since I have very little expertise in terms of to come into any sensible, meaningful, informed way about the, the um, what's happening in the Arab world in particular, um, I wouldn't bring that into this. But you do raise a number of points that one is obviously to consider. Um, I would one general comment though, I'm not sure what the value is worth it, but um, in terms of people in the new globalized world in Tudor, perhaps I was given to right, the first truly international society um, that we are having to cope with and this diversity. Sometimes there are opportunities which I wonder, let me put as a question, but there are sometimes opportunities where when people base their social action on those opportunities, it might look at from another angle, might seem to be discriminatory. Uh, and the example I have in mind um, is that some years back we, when we go to India uh, frequently, and um, we went to, to the south, to Cochin. And Cochin is a, I don't know if any of you are familiar. I'm sure you would be. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> okay. But one of the things that struck me talking to you at the time, they, were, they said there were only like 12 uh, Jewish, I think they said individuals. I said, do you mean families? Because there's 12 families, it could be a community, but 12 individuals. And given the importance of Jews for that city, of its history, of its development, of its place on the map, etc., uh, what, what was its basis of? They left, the, uh, they were told they have to independence, predominantly. Um, and I suppose there's a case, perhaps, I felt, and I might be wrong, that of opportunity. And the people there felt that they should. They, they could take up this opportunity to go to, to, to Israel. Um, and I, it came to our minds then, has there been discrimination on the part of the Indian majority why these people felt no longer at home and, and to leave? And I kept feeling, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not explored it well, but perhaps you, 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 you have. Still, what was it? Was it the pull factor or the push factor? Was it the discrimination or the opportunity? And um, but what you said about what's happening in parts of Europe, I, 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 I wasn't myself aware of that. You're right in saying that a lot of us who are very informed about aspects of struggles of one group or others may not always be so, you know, more comprehensive. Which is a comment, it's a comment on the, the um, perhaps the nationalization, if you like, of a lot of 
um, intellectual, academic, and practical struggles contexts where the internationalization of are not as strong as they used to be. No longer, certainly in Britain, do we have large meetings or <coughs> academic meetings where, as such as I'm sure, this, um, this series of seminars meant to be done, where people from different backgrounds, with different, um, with different concerns, can relate to a common uh, question, to a common theme, uh, and therefore be more informed about them. And that's a part of the condition of our times. We're more locked into our national or regional uh, perhaps uh, concerns more than we perhaps ought to. Those were quite important. Hmm? Yeah. 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 Did you, are you, are you leaving? But you, yeah. I think you wanted to make a point earlier. I did. did you? I'm just we must give you the opportunity. Um, I guess I was wondering um, about if you could speak to some degree. You, you, you speak about Salman Rushdie's uh, satanic verses, perhaps as a beginning um, of sorts. And I was wondering if you could um, speak a bit about why you think now there's um, manifestations of um, aggressive religion. What, what about the condition of now as opposed to perhaps that starting point uh, or earlier times in the post-imperial um, society in Britain? Um, things might have been different. Okay. I, I see. Well, with, I, I, I wouldn't, I've avoided perhaps the term aggressive when he was assertive. If I'm perhaps sitting on the, on the, on the sideline, so to speak, and not. I thought it was a mindset as to how best at the moment to describe it. But I think why I latched on to the Russian thing, at the time I recall that some French colleagues asked me to write a paper on what did I consider to be new issues in British um, politics and society. And it's always nice when people ask you to do something, as, as you're talking, where it forces you to, to pull together a number of, of your thought. And it struck me then that in the British context, specifically in England, what used to happen in the post-1945 period around these issues is that the main concerns were about broad aspects of social justice with respect to the kinds of discrimination that existed in the workplace, in terms of employment, in the housing market, um, in the criminal justice system, in terms of police community relations, um, in education, and, and so forth. And these are practical, identifiable areas. You know, it, it, and com new communities in Britain struggled over those issues and brought about, forced the state to change the rules um, so that, for example, it became unacceptable for a landlord to put up a notice saying there's a flat or a house to rent but um, no blacks, no Irish, um, etc. That could no longer be done. Just, uh, so in housing, in employment uh, and so on, the race relations laws 
those certain things outside of the law. And those were, in comparative terms, in general terms rather, were to do with broad issues of social justice. Um, social justice in the, within the broader tradition, I suppose, of, of a kind of liberalism dealing with matters that it defined to be in the public sphere. With the Rushley affair, the things changed dramatically. People were not so much concerned about those set of things that I've just described. They were now concerned about whether their religion, whether their values, their views, their, perspective, their world perspective were respected, whether these formed part of public discourse. And the distinction which I obtained for perhaps a better part of about a century and a half with the socio-political socio structure um, were changed. Religion, for example, which was considered to be a private matter, now became very much public matter. The, what occurred in the household, now that's in respect to, to what was happening to views about religion and in terms of particularly with Islam. You see, just, just before that, in the sphere of, um, if you consider the impact of, say, Sikhism in British society, it was very, still very much in the political sphere. In terms of the demands we were making on India and the Indian state, those went beyond that. But in the British context, they contained it in, 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 very much in a, as a public political matter. Um, other groups, I suppose, that we consider Salman Rushdie's own work, uh, Midnight Children, for example, um, how a Hindu might have looked at that if their attitude was the same about their religion. Um, I, I, I found it easier to read probably the aspects of the, um, of the satanic verses than to read Midnight Children. Now, and yet, there hasn't been the same kind of uproar uh, about that. So in Britain, something very definitely changed. And I think it resonated with a view, I've forgotten the, right, the name of the writer now, but there was a paper which was written by a young um, anthropologist, which said that West Indian people um, have problems, Asians have culture. And do you understand? <laughs> the point of view there was that since the phase up to the late 80s was very much led by people of Caribbean backgrounds, whether they were of African Caribbean or Asian background, but very much people from that region. After the Rushdie phase, it shifted dramatically and became very much more. Uh, public speakers, public figures, very much more from um, the, the, the Asian, South Asian backgrounds and predominantly uh, Muslim And that brought a very different kind of perspective to public discourses. And, uh, and that has gone on, I think, um, very, very much since. I think there is beginning to be something of a turn, question, where people say, well, you know, we need to 
in, in terms of talking about religion and our values, some of the very practical things of life that people are suffering uh, from are not being part of the public discourse at all. And that probably it is that, it is that neglect of some of the real issues of unemployment, for example, um, which would be returned to comparatively soon. One comment I read, uh, again, who was the person who put forward this argument recently, saying that the real problem in British society are the amount of young men, or of black young men, who are unemployed. And that is just a problem waiting to, to explode. Now, once that explodes, that's very little to do with values, religion, culture, and so on. It has very, everything to do with the British economy and social justice. But to your point there, that, that, that's, you know, as to why do I feel that there's been that shift. Um, I don't know if that has cast any more light on, on that problematic, but it is a real one, I think, and one which marks a divide in the period from 1945 to, to roughly now. Great, thank, thank you all. Uh, delighted we've been able to do this this afternoon. Uh, I'll make uh, just a quick announcement. Our next uh, event will be on October 18th. We have Alexander Tsitsis from the University, uh, Loyola University of Chicago coming to speak about free speech and anti-Semitism, uh, comparative approaches to free speech in the United States and Europe. Uh, and I'd like to ask you to join me in, in thanking Professor Goldborn for the wonderful, uh, very insightful talk that he gave this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.